He has shown thee, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. I was 18 years old when I first heard that song. 18 years old. I guess you could say I was taking a gap year right out of high school, except for no one in my life called it that at the time. I was young, and I was searching. Not necessarily searching for God or for religion, because I already knew God. I grew up in church, and by the time I was 18 years old, I had a head full of Bible stories and Bible knowledge and a heart eager to serve. But nonetheless, I was still searching. I was searching for my path. What does God want me to do with my life? That was the fundamental question of that time. What? What is his plan for my life? What does it mean to love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind? What? And in search... For the answer to that fundamental question of what, I ran headlong straight into adulthood with all the wide-eyed optimism of a foolhardy teenager. The first job I took out of high school, I was working for a homeless shelter in the city of Chicago. And this was a homeless shelter that was operated by a church. And so in the mornings, I would go and, and I would care for toddlers and infants, and I would sing to these infants about the eternal love of Jesus that would follow them all the days of their life. I'd watch these babies so that their, their parents, afflicted with homelessness, could go and make it to their various appointments or look for work. And then in the afternoon, my role would shift, and I would go to our after-school tutoring program where I would tutor kids K through 5 who came home to the shelter after school each day. And that's actually how I met my husband, Jedediah. Uh, we tutored homeless children together five days a week, all the while slowly falling in love. My kids are grossed out right now. <laughs> and in the evenings of that gap year, my friends and I would often find ourselves having spontaneous Bible studies, sometimes late into the night. And worship circles, as they were called back then, usually with just an old beat-up acoustic guitar and a hand drum and our voices and a lava lamp. There was usually a lava lamp. And that is the context in which Micah 6-8, the song, was first presented to me. And if all of this sounds a little hippie-esque, it's because it was. It totally was. This was the springtime of my youth a very carefree time in my life where I really felt like I was finding the answer to that fundamental question of what. This is what God wants me to do with my life. And this, this is what it means to serve God as an adult in the real world. Everything was new and everything was possible. Micah 6, 8, the scripture turned song fit that season of my life so perfectly because it was just so simple. Just nine words. 
Nine words to live by. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. At 18, it all seemed so straightforward. I could do that. This is going to be easy. Do justly. I'm a just person. Or at the very least, I'm not an unjust person. Love mercy. Okay, I could see how that one might be a little, a little more difficult. That might be the, the tough one out of the three, but I did learn the golden rule as a child. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So if I want love and mercy to be shown to me, I have to show love and mercy to others, right? That's an that's a even exchange, okay? That makes sense. Walk humbly. Well, for goodness sakes, I tutor homeless children in the inner city as my full-time job. I am a portrait of selflessness. I'm probably the most humble person in this entire worship circle right now. And that was me. That was me at 18 with all the self-absorbed piety of a foolhardy, starry-eyed teenager. But we all know where the story goes from there, right? Nothing can ever stay that way. Because life happens. Life happens. It gets more difficult. It gets harder and more complicated. Trials come and friends go. Seasons of life change. And then they change all over again. People change. Disappointments come. And often with those disappointments come wounds that fester into bitterness and contempt and anger, even anger toward God. And the heart can grow cold. Time passed, and I was not 18 anymore. Gone were the spontaneous Bible studies and free-spirited worship circles of my youth. They were instead replaced with more fundamental questions of what. Only this time it was, what is this all even for? Or, Or what is going on? Or what happened Or what do I do now? Life did not seem so magical anymore. I was weary, perhaps even to the point of being weary with God. And yet, through the years, Micah 6, 8, still haunting in its simplicity, stayed burned into my memory and etched across my heart. An almost nagging exhortation to do justly, Love mercy and walk humbly with my God. And now I'm here. Now I'm here. And you are here and we are all here. We've made it to the fourth and final week of our Micah series. Where all month long we've been taking a look at the prophetic words of Micah. Micah, a name that means who is like God. Hold on to that because we'll come back to that later. Micah means... Who is like God? Micah spoke a prophetic message that would both afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. His words were meant to afflict those who were living comfortably by unjust means. To the the corrupt leaders who were abusing their power. To those who were cheating and stealing from the poor, the widowed, to those who were abusing and taking advantage of the strangers, the foreigners living among them, to those who would abuse their power and spread death 
injustice and brokenness throughout Israel, Micah had a harsh message for them. God's judgment is coming and catastrophe is imminent. But to those who were the cheated ones, the abused, to those who were afflicted, Micah spoke of a coming restoration. There was hope on the horizon. He prophesied a time when wars would cease, when there wouldn't even be a need for swords because those swords would be beaten and and reformed and reshaped into plowshares. Weapons, instruments of death would be transformed into instruments that would bring about life. Peace would return to Israel as the nation would once again be ruled by Yahweh, the compassionate and powerful shepherd, king. But God wasn't finished speaking through Micah because Israel had become desperately corrupt. They'd forgotten the very essence of the law. Remember when Moses gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 10? Right after he gives them the commandments, Moses says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? There it is, that age-old fundamental question of what. What does God require? And here's his answer. He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases him and love him. And serve him with all your heart and soul. And you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. It's for your own good. Moses goes on to say, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners. For you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. This short summary of God's law gets to the very heart of that fundamental question of what. What does the Lord require of you? He tells us here in so many words that the greatest offering we can give to God is a life lived in line with his intentions for the world. But by the time we get to Micah's day, it seems that the nation of Israel had all but completely forgotten that. They'd all but completely forgotten the essence of the law. They were not living in a way that pleased God at all. They were abusing the foreigners They were stealing from and taking advantage of the widows, even the orphans. The powerful were living comfortably all right, but it was at the expense of the downtrodden and the oppressed. And God had had enough of this gross injustice and blatant disregard for his law. It was time to settle the matter. And what a better way to illustrate this than in a court of law. What follows in Micah 6 takes on the form of a courtroom drama, and I love a good courtroom drama. All the major players are here. There are witnesses and plaintiffs, and God himself will take on the role of both prosecutor 
and defendant. So let's turn there together, Micah chapter 6, in the House Bibles, that's page 768, or you can follow along on the Grace Church app, or of course, if you brought your own Bible, uh, Micah chapter 6. And while we're turning there, I want to say welcome to everybody in this room. Uh, Thank you for making it to church. You did it. You should applaud yourselves. (laughs) I know for some of us it's hard to get out the door, so thank you for being here in this place, and thank you to those of you that are joining us online. I know many of you watch regionally, or maybe you're on vacation, it is Memorial Day weekend, and many of you watch from other states, even from other countries. So thank you for being here this morning and for being part of our global Grace Church family. So Micah chapter 6, in verse 1. We see the prophet Micah setting the stage for what appears to be an ongoing litigation. He says, listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. The people of Israel are pictured here as one large body of like-minded litigants with a complaint against God. They dragged God into this courtroom to accuse him of wearing them out. They were tired. And they don't say specifically what they were tired of, but what we can surmise from this passage is that they were tired of everything, tired of the sacrificing, tired of the tithing, tired of the having to love the foreigners and, and self-giving love to widows and orphans, tired of the Ten Commandments, just tired of living under his authority. We continue reading in verse 1. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. The mountains and the hills, they were called to serve as star witnesses in this courtroom. And I love the drama of this scene so much. The defense would like to call the mountains to the stand. And the courtroom gasps, not the mountains, Because they know everything. The mountains had stood since the beginning of time, silently observing the entire history of Israel, all the good, but all the very, very bad. And they could testify to the faithfulness of Yahweh and the infidelity of the Israelites. So Micah turns to address these ancient mountain witnesses and he says, And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. God flips the script with this stunning countersuit. Yes, the people of Israel have dragged God into court, but Yahweh has a grievance of his own. What follows in verses 3 through 5 is an example of a distinctive speech form in the Bible called a covenant lawsuit. And there are other examples of this throughout Scripture, like this example from the prophet Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. That's the tone we're used to hearing from these covenant lawsuit speeches. But that's not his tone here in Micah 6. He doesn't list off all the ways in which they can be found in breach of contract. He doesn't tell them how they've broken the covenant and worshipped other gods and been unfaithful to their God. 
No, his tone is different. He does indict Israel, but he doesn't launch into a list of critiques. Instead, he speaks with a voice of tenderness directly to his people. And he says, my people, oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. And the list he gives is not a list of how many ways the people have failed him. Not this time. This time he cites a list of his loving interventions. He names four times where he himself stepped in and miraculously delivered his people, Israel. He says, for I brought you out of Egypt and I redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember? My people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead. And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. He starts with the story of the Exodus, Israel's most famous rescue story. He recites how he rescued his people from slavery, how he gave them brave leaders in Moses, Aaron, and the prophetess, Miriam, who would lead them to freedom. Yahweh exhorts his people to remember, remember his goodness. He calls them my people to remind them that he is the reason they exist at all. He gave Israel her name. He gave Israel her history. He gave her her very existence. Remember King Balak? Remember how he wanted to annihilate you? Remember how he wanted to curse you and wipe you from the face of the earth, but instead I used my prophet Balaam to bless you. Don't you remember that bit about the the talking donkey? I used a donkey to make sure that Balaam followed through and brought you my blessing. And don't you remember Acacia Grove on one side of the Jordan where you were humiliating yourselves and worshiping false gods and destroying yourselves from within? But I brought you from there across the Jordan to Gilgal. Gilgal, a word that means to roll, to the place where I rolled away your shame. I did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. Which leads us back to that fundamental question of what, because now it is the people's turn to respond in this courtroom drama. And they respond with a question. What do you want us to do now, Lord? What? What what does it take? What does a sinner have to do to turn away your anger and restore your favor upon us? Look at what they say in verse 6. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams? 10,000 rivers of oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? What a list. It just keeps escalating. It's as if the people of Israel were saying, what do you want from us, Lord? Should we bring you the usual, a burnt offering? Or maybe something a little more expensive this time. How about a couple of yearling calves? Would that make you happy? 
For some reason, they had it in their minds that they could appease God by just buying him off. Their proposed offerings just get more and more ridiculous as this list goes on. Thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. And then they go as far as to reach beyond what was even possible, even acceptable as a sacrifice. Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? This gross exaggeration only served to prove the point that God was in no way interested in their religious ritual offerings. He already told them he cannot be bribed. There was no material offering so grand that could purchase God's mercy and forgiveness or force him to act on their behalf. That's how the pagans worshiped their gods. The pagans would bring things to their gods, hoping to appease them, but Yahweh is not interested in mere things. He desires something much more precious. Because the greatest offering we can give God is a life lived in line with his intentions for the world. He showed us through the words of his prophet Hosea, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. And through the words of his prophet Amos, I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And now he speaks through his prophet Micah. These famous words. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. To do what is right. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. There's a thread here. This is some world of the text stuff that I don't want us to miss. This is some wordplay that I think is really important. The Lord asked Micah, In chapter 6, verse 3, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? And in response, the people asked, What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? And the prophet Micah gives the answer, The Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he requires of you. The answer to that fundamental question of what, what does it mean to live as a disciple? What what is God's call on my life? What does it mean to love him with all my heart and my soul and my mind? The answer to the fundamental question of what is to do justly. Or as our house Bibles would put it, do what is right. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Because the greatest offering that we can give God is a life lived in line with his intentions for the world. Go back and look over that outrageous list of offerings to God. Each item on that list was the sacrifice of a living thing. The Israelites were foolishly and arrogantly focusing on the external objects they had at their disposal. Calves, rams, even olives. 
rather than repenting of their sin and abandoning their wickedness and injustice. They were completely focused on their religious rituals, on their religiosity, but they neglected to acknowledge that Yahweh was Lord over their entire lives, not just the part they had labeled their religion. God doesn't want the life of a thing. He wants the life of the person standing before him. He wants my life. And he wants your life. And he wants all of it. God desires to be Lord over our entire lives, over our innermost parts, our hearts, over our decisions and our desires. He wants to be Lord over our behavior and our actions because nothing, none of it is hidden from him, not even our motivations. Psalm 40 says, you take no delight in sacrifices or offerings, and now that you've made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. When I was 18, God forever wrote his instructions on my heart with Micah 6.8. He's a just God, and therefore I should act justly. Or to put it a different way, he is a righteous God, and therefore I should do what is right. He is an abundantly merciful God, so I should love mercy. The word used for mercy here is chesed. It means kindness, especially as extended to the lowly, the needy, the miserable. When we remember how he showed us kindness when we were lowly and needy and miserable, it can't help but make us humble. And the word he uses here for for humbly, walk humbly, it's the word sana, which means to show or to demonstrate humility. We live our lives in a way that shows our gratitude for his goodness, his tender, loving kindness We live in a way that demonstrates that to the world around us. This isn't a a self-debasement, you know, walk humbly. No, walking humbly means walking upright and displaying to the world around us the character of God. And it sounds so simple, doesn't it? Because God loves mercy, I should love mercy. And because God is a just God, I should behave justly. Just be more like God. It's not hard right? Be more like God. And I mean, it is simple. It is. Until it isn't. When conflict arises and hurts compound, loving mercy takes guts. When you witness an abuse of power, speaking up for the cause of God's justice, protecting the vulnerable among you requires bravery And you might lose some folks. Just like Israel in Micah's day, our world today is full of injustices and greed. The call to act justly is urgent. But doing what is right might make you unpopular. And it might require great sacrifice on your part. And showing humility in this me-first age of social media and self-promotion and cancel culture and defense, actually demonstrating humility is about the most countercultural thing we could do. 
And it requires a large measure of self-control that we can only get from the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit, self-control. But it's exactly why God left us his Holy Spirit so that we could behave more like him and demonstrate who he is to the world around us. What if we were to spend more time praying for and encouraging those around us than we do on promoting ourselves? What if we used our social media presence to lift others up or to pray for others instead of exalting ourselves or tearing down people who think differently than we do? And what if we actively looked for opportunities to show mercy to those in need? And yes, I mean actively looking for ways to serve those who are in need of food, clothing, or financial assistance, things our care center does so well week after week after week. But what if we ourselves were to also actively look for opportunities to forgive, to show mercy in that way, even when it isn't deserved? That would definitely make our walk humble. And now, will we get it right all the time? No, we will not get it right all the time. We will mess up. We will make mistakes. There will be moments where we forget to act justly or circumstances where we find it hard to love mercy or kindness. And there will be times where our own lack of humility is embarrassingly apparent to those around us. But here's the hope. Here's the hope. Remember I told you Micah's name had a meaning. Micah means who is like God. Who is like God. Look at how Micah concludes his book of prophecy in the last three verses of chapter 7. Micah says, who is a God like you? Do you hear it? Micah puts the meaning of his own name in there. He puts himself in this story. Who is a God like you? Micah had known his entire life that there is no other God like Yahweh, no other God like Yahweh who pardons wrongdoing and passes over a rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again take pity on us. He will trample on our wrongdoings. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and favor to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Micah ends, he concludes his dire prophecy with a promise of hope. He's saying, look, Israel, you messed up. You messed up big. But God still desires to restore you. He still desires to restore you. He promises to give you truth, even favor. He will again take pity on you. He won't stay angry forever because he is a God who delights in mercy. As he was faithful to your forefathers, he will be faithful to you as well. Think about everything we've read in this book over the last four weeks. All the abusive acts of injustice and the, as the greedy and the powerful took advantage of the poor and the weak. God is a God of justice. And blatant injustice makes our God angry. But he will not stay angry forever. 
He will not stay angry forever. He will execute his judgment, but his ultimate aim is to restore because he is a God who loves mercy. He delights in showing mercy. About four years ago, my friend and my coworker, Tyler Bender, asked me if I would consider co-hosting a, a new podcast he was conceptualizing for Grace Church. And to tell you the truth, at the time, I did not know what a podcast was. But I went along with it. Um, I'll try anything once. And we get to the end of our pilot episode, and Tyler turns around and he looks at me and Barry, and he says, we need a sign-off. Now, you wouldn't think that such an arbitrary moment in time would become, for me, a watershed moment in my life, but it did because I remember, as if involuntarily, the ancient words of Micah the prophet, the lyrics to that song I'd learned in my youth that had become such an integral part of my life, the distilled essence of the law just poured out of my heart as though I'd been waiting my entire life to say the words, do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And I've quoted that scripture over the last four years, once a week, every week, (laughs) on good weeks, And on terrible weeks, there were times that that scripture rolled off my tongue with ease, and then there were other times where I wrestled with every word. Do justly. Am I living that way? Am I a hypocrite? Can I even say that? Do I connect with these words right now? I wrestled. But I keep repeating it. I keep practicing it. I keep saying it out loud to remind myself and to remind all of us that the greatest offering we can give God is a life lived in line with his intentions for the world. His intentions, not my intentions. That means it's not about me. It means that I must surrender my entire life, put my whole self on the altar before the Lord and present myself as a living sacrifice. That's what that verse means. The entirety of my life is yours, Lord. It's not about me. Go ahead, say it with me. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about my religious offerings. It's not about my religious posturing. It's not about my material comfort. It's not about my need to have the last word in every situation. It's not about my desire to be right all the time. It's not about my pride or even my reputation. It all comes down to the greatest commandment. It all comes down to this. I will love you, my God, above all things because it's all about you. And I will love my neighbor as myself because it's not about me. I will love my neighbor as myself because you love my neighbor. You love the foreigner. You love the orphan and the widow. You love the sinner. You love the sinner who is me. You even love the sinners who sinned against you. And because You love the sinners. So will I. Because you love humanity, I will love them too. Because I'm a reflection. I'm a reflection of who you are in this broken world. Are we ready to live like this? Are we ready to live a life that is in line with his intentions for the world? 
Or maybe you're still asking that fundamental question of what? What does God desire of me? What does he want from me? If that's you, open your heart. Hear the enduring word of the Lord. Let him, by the power of his Holy Spirit, forever write his instructions on your heart. For he has shown you, O human, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. Lord, your word endures forever. Your truth echoes generation to generation, and it even finds us now. Wherever we are, Lord, your word, your truth, it finds us where we are. Thank you, God, for the power of your living word. May it sink deep, Lord. Etch your instructions across our heart. And help us, Lord. Give us grace to show mercy to those around us. Give us the bravery to do justly in the face of blatant injustice and to do so in your name. And help us, God, to continue always to walk humbly with you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church. And the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.